A truism of the medieval era was that the personal was political and politics was very deeply personal. The issue with vesting power into a single figure, a king, was that one man's every actions and beliefs became, by nature of the way society was constructed, intensely political. Nothing a king did was free from this reality, even things as intimate and as deeply private as grief and coping with disaster. The reign of King Henry I of England, the youngest son of William of Normandy, is a study in how one man's ambition, stubbornness and personality were to shape the nation around him. He was many things, but above all, he was driven. And that drive was to have explosive consequences upon not just England, but France also. His story is really a lesson in how one man can change the future, whether he intended to or not. Hi there, my name is Saul and this is the Story of London, a podcast that literally tells the tale of the city from ancient times until the present era. Each episode stands alone as a snapshot into life during a certain time, but taken together they form a mammoth attempt to try and tell the fascinating and amazing story of what I think is the most exciting city on earth. This is a special episode, one that I'm afraid will not focus on London. Oh, London does appear in the tale in this chapter, but our attention will be elsewhere, and there's a reason for this. This is the story of a disaster a calamity that shocked people at the time and made them react in the same way we respond to calamities now. We stare at them with a mixture of fascination and horror, yes? But the story of this disaster needs to be told because after it ended, the ghost of it lingered. The spectre of the implications of that one cold November night was to visit upon London for generations to come. There will be men and women born and raised in London whose very lives will be dictated by the ripples of the shades of the consequence of this terrible accident. A year ago I started this podcast and by way of celebrating I'm releasing a special second episode this week, mostly because while I pride myself as being a student of history, in this episode, I'm committed to the role of narrator and storyteller. And for me, the story I'm about to tell you is equal parts fascinating, horrific, and terrible. The kind that deserves autumnal evenings and warm blankets. So with that said, I'd like to welcome you to the full tale of what some feel is the most important moment in the history of medieval England, and a fragment of time which haunts all that is to come in the tale of the City of London. Welcome then to chapter 59 of the story, The Ghost of the White Ship. To understand the significance of what was about to hit London, I'm afraid we're going to have to take a few moments to really look at King Henry I's policy over in France. It helps to try and remember that modern lines of the map really do not apply here. The Kingdom of England and the Duchy of Normandy were the same realm. Yes, Normandy was part of France, but since William the Conqueror had ruled both simultaneously, the two region status had been a source of endless politics. We had seen all three sons of William the Conqueror fight over this. William Rufus and Henry I had invaded Normandy during their reigns to secure the territory, or parts of the territory, from their older brother Robert, who had also invaded England to secure that realm. 
This was not some separate thing from England, but rather a natural extension of the politics of the realm. This, of course, meant automatically the King of France, to whom Normandy swore allegiance to, would also be involved. And around Normandy then came the inherited politics of the region, which meant that Flanders, Brittany, Marne and other regions would also be involved in political debates. This was a geopolitical fault line that ran through Northern Europe. And while England itself was separate from this region by the sea, as we have seen, it wasn't always possible to isolate the island of Britain from this mess. Now, I have spoken about the events as have happened in the previous chapters, but as I like to remind everyone, my explanations are often just simplifications, and as such, we need a tad more detail about exactly what Henry I was up to. Keep in mind, however, that in the aftermath of 1066, some 4,000 English thanes had been replaced by about 200 Norman barons as the principal landowners of England. And by 1086, about 30 of these Norman barons held about one-third of all the land that could be possessed. And these Normans were still Normans. The majority retained land and castles and estates over the water. The two regions were deeply interlinked. Normandy had been ruled by the oldest son of William the Conqueror, Duke Robert. He was, by all accounts, rather useless at the job. The indolence and uselessness his father had accused him of turned out to be a rather accurate assessment of the man's character. Duke Robert consistently failed to read the political signs in Normandy and had faced rebellion, sometimes caused by his own actions and sometimes instigated by his younger brother, William Rufus, King of England. Rufus had used a winning combination of smooth-talking his fellow Normans as well as copious amounts of English silver, so that he overrun the Norman strongholds one by one until, effectively, he became the overlord of the lion's share of the duchy. When this was done, Rufus finally just invaded Normandy in 1091, and where Robert did raise forces to drive him off, he just seemed totally unable to stop his brother's offensive. Five years later, Robert opted out of this entire thing. He decided to go on crusade, mortgaged his duchy to his younger brother for about four million pounds or so by today's money, and I spent a whole chapter on Robert going off to play crusader. Rufus ran Normandy for a few years, and then when Robert came back with his rich widow bride, and just when it looked like Rufus would not give up Normandy, the king gets an arrow in his chest, and hey presto, regime change, and along comes Henry, the baby brother of the trio, and we're now dealing with a new regime in England, and Robert is back in charge of Normandy. Let's start the dance again, shall we? Henry had always known he'd face the prospect of a newly returned crusader Robert claiming the English throne, and indeed, with the help of Renault Flambard, Robert invaded in July 1101. But after botching his campaign, Robert and Henry agreed to a truce, and at the Treaty of Alton, the two brothers were reconciled for a while. But in April 1105, Henry had used his wealth to stir up revolt in Normandy again, and had sailed into Barfleur Harbour unopposed in April 1105, with the intention of just taking Normandy. His campaign had been brutal, and reduced Bayer to a smoking ember, and captured major cities before returning home. 
1106, he returned, destroyed a fortified abbey, and Robert finally raised his last forces to meet his baby brother at the Battle of Tinshebrav, where Robert was utterly defeated, captured, and Henry had won. This led King Henry to begin a long, hard slog to try and consolidate his rule over Normandy. It wasn't easy. In fact, he spent the best part of a decade trying to do this. Why was it so hard? Well, the first task was trying to recapture the ducal castles that had fallen out of the duchy's direct control, what with the weakness of Robert. Henry began to try and remove the lawful occupants of these castles by fair means or foul. But while this was going on, and while Robert was imprisoned over in England, Robert's young son, a kid called William Cleto, took up his father's banner in his little hands and appealed to the two men who could possibly help him. King Louis VI of France, known as Louis the Fat, and Count Fulk of Anjou, who was supposedly his father's closest ally. The kid's rebellion dragged Henry I into a long guerrilla war, where discontent Norman land magnates finding this kid's cause made a convincing excuse to rebel against Henry. And it meant that they were hitting Henry's forces where he was weak and ravaging much land, and this made things incredibly difficult for the King of England. There are veritable libraries worth of material I'm missing out here to do with the personal politics and dynastic views and land rows swirling around here. But bottom line, while Duke Robert had sworn allegiance to the French king, neither William Rufus nor Henry I ever had. So King Louis had a vested interest in supporting this William Cleto, as this would grant him a Duke of Normandy who bent the knee as he should to the King of France. With King Louis of France being all, I've got your back, towards William Cleto, the whole campaign seemed to focus upon the small region of Vexin, which was traditionally the gateway for the French to invade the eastern part of Normandy and was also the way the Normans could march on Paris. Control of Vexin was a big thing. The region was split into two, with a French occupational zone which lay between the rivers Epti and Uys, and a Norman occupational zone between the rivers Andel and Epti. But without any formal lines of demarcation denoting a border as we would recognise it, it became a region given over to border creep and conflict here seemed endemic. Indeed, it was in this region that William the Conqueror had died, trying to annex a French zone, injuring himself, riding through a burning town. So, as you can imagine, for Henry I to secure Normandy, Henry I needed to secure Vexin. The fighting raged between 1111 and 1116, with no clear winner. But then, in 1118, King Louis pulled his masterstroke. He launched a pincer attack. His forces surged into Normandy and Vexin from the east, while at the same time, Count Folk of Anjou besieged the town of Alencon to the south. Henry was having great difficulty dealing with this, due to the fact that his beloved and very competent wife, Queen Matilda, who had been regent of England while he was waging these wars, had died. And this left him weakened politically. But adversity can often bring out the best in people, and it was at this dark moment that Henry I pulled the greatest political move of his life. He thought fast and opened negotiations with Count Fulk. Fulk was fundamentally an ambitious man, and Henry I offered the Count of Anjou the deal of a lifetime. See, Henry had lots of illegitimate children which had allowed him forge dynastic links across Britain and Europe. 
but he also had two legitimate children. And the single most important one was his one legitimate teenage son, Prince William. Folk, you see, had a teenage daughter. And what Henry offered was a chance to marry his daughter to his son. And Folk's kid would become a queen, and in time, his grandchildren would become royalty. Well, you don't get that kind of offer every day now, do you? Count Folk leapt at the chance. The contested county of Maine, the gateway into Normandy from the south, would be his daughter's dowry. And like that, Henry was no longer fighting a two-front war. It was now a single-front war, and the English king and overlord of Normandy could bring his full attention upon the forces of King Louis of France. The two kings basically unleashed carnage upon one another, destroying castles, churches, and even entire towns, as they inflicted staggering amounts of fire and slaughter and death upon the other's forces. Henry had a habit of winning whenever they met in pitched battles, but it wasn't always cut and dried. In one such encounter, Henry received a massive blow to the head, the sword piercing his helmet and drawing blood, but he survived. In amidst all this carnage and chaos, there was also a heightened sense of political volatility. And Henry had survived several assassination attempts across the years 1118, 1119 and 1121. The most famous of these was instigated by one of his illegitimate daughters. A short digression, but it's interesting. His daughter Juliana had married a man who demanded some castles of a rival noble and in an attempt to mitigate the fighting, Henry had insisted that the two sides exchange hostages. His two granddaughters, the daughters of Juliana, were sent to this rival and his son-in-law was sent the son of his rival to be kept safe in his household. King Henry's son-in-law then deliberately blinded the boy and sent him home. This noble screamed blue murder about the family of the king breaking universally accepted rules of hostages and the king agreed he could blind and mutilate his own granddaughters in retaliation. At this, his daughter Juliana rose up in rebellion against Henry. There was fighting, and eventually she surrendered to him. As father and daughter went to reconcile, the story goes, Juliana pulled a crossbow and tried to shoot her father at close range. She just missed and apparently leapt out of a window and fled. Yeah, this actually happened. The result of all these assassination attempts were well documented. Henry began sleeping with a sword and shield by his bed, carrying weapons at all times when awake. But this being said, he was hoping for better results with his new diplomatic moves, and it seemed to be working. Prince William was married to Folk's daughter, and immediately in the celebrations which followed, was proclaimed Henry's successor by all the nobility in both England and Normandy. And with that, the insurgency across Normandy instigated by William Cleto seemed to end, leaving only the King of France to deal with. And this problem was solved via diplomacy. In negotiations overseen by Pope Calaxtus II, Henry and Louis settled their quarrel over the French king's right to feudal overlordship of Normandy. Louis agreed to fully recognise that the holder of the duchy would be Henry's heir, Prince William, who, now as Duke of Normandy, swore allegiance to the French king. All of which meant that King Henry of England got Louis to support his succession without having to swear an oath to the French king himself. It was rather brilliant. The treaty that came from this, ratified in May 1120, enabled 
England and Normandy to be officially reunited. And the issue that had plagued England since William the Conqueror had divided the lands upon his deathbed had been solved. One realm, one king. It was brilliant and masterful, and Henry was Lord Imperial and at the height of his power. The crucial glue to all of this was simple Prince William. As long as that kid remained alive, England and Normandy could and would continue as a single realm. And the future, medium to long term, seemed sorted. Six months later, however, it all fell apart. On November 25th of that year, Henry I was returning back to England. It was a Thursday. He and his court were leaving Normandy, the great and the good of his massive kingdom returning for the Christmas celebrations, probably in Winchester or Windsor. The weather had been unseasonably calm. Henry was going to make the journey on his great warship, a snake, the name derived from the old Norse word for serpent or snake. It was basically a derivative of the old dragon ships of Viking times, commanded by a highly paid master and with a highly professional crew. With the ship was undoubtedly an escort of a few other ships, smaller yet containing warriors who would act as outliers to escort the king home, along with other ships for carrying cargo and precious things he wanted to relocate from Normandy to England. As Henry prepared to make his way back to England from the port of Barfleur, he was approached by a man called Thomas Fitzstephen. His father had been William the Conqueror's personal master steersman back in the invasion of 1066, having steered the mirror across the channel. Thomas, knowing Henry was in town and planning to sail that evening, came to him looking to serve the king in a similar role his father had served Henry's father. The king was taking his entire court back to England, and that was quite a few souls and quite a large amount of cargo, so Thomas offered the king the use of his finest craft, the white ship, a large boat, incapable of carrying a number of the court, sleek, well-made, and recently refitted to the best standards and ready to go at a moment's notice. Henry mused upon this for a moment and accepted Fitzstephen's offer. Henry decided that the three of his large brood of children he had with him should take the white ship, given they and their friends were a tad noisier than his own court. Two of his children who were with him were illegitimate, but still had rank and status. One was called Richard of Lincoln. Richard had been born of Henry and a woman of unknown origin, but who's generally described as his third mistress. He was about 18 or 19 now, He'd been raised by Robert Bluett, the brilliant English civil servant, treasurer and later Bishop of Lincoln, which is where Richard got his nickname from. Whereas we don't know that much about Richard of Lincoln, we know that he grew up to be fierce and aggressive. He'd spent the last few years fighting alongside his father in the wars against the French king, including serving in what seems to be some of the most feared and bloodthirsty of the English units. Young Richard was not afraid of battle. Indeed, in Odoric Vitalis' account of the Battle of Brimuel, the final conflict between King Louis and Henry, he says, quote, The French launched the first fierce attack, but charging in disorder, they were beaten off and quickly tiring turned tail. Richard, the king's son, and a hundred knights were sitting on their horses, ready for battle, unquote. Richard of Lincoln had just been betrothed to the young Amis de Guerre, who was the daughter of the defender of Brimuel, a man called Raoul de Gaulle II, who in turn was the son of 
Ralph de Gaal, who I mentioned a few chapters ago. He's the Earl of East Anglia who had joined the First Crusade. Alongside Richard was his half-sister, Matilda. She was Henry's oldest child, born sometime in the 1080s, her mother being an unknown woman from Devon. Matilda, now in her late 30s we think, had married the Count of Percy and they had had two daughters of their own. It does feel like Henry put her on the white ship to provide a little adult supervision for Richard and the final of the trio of his children, Prince William. William was by now just 17, the only legitimate son of Henry and the late Queen Matilda. He was of the line of William the Conqueror, but also of the line of Alfred the Great. He was newly married, he was Duke of Normandy, and he was heir to the throne of England. By all accounts, Prince William was somewhat spoilt, but was known to be cheerful and filled with youthful energy. In all ways, a fun-loving teenager. He was in high spirits, and we can imagine, based on what comes later, ready to enjoy a fun sail over the channel. As the royal court waited for the high tide, the day ended and the night fell. It was a cold one, bitterly cold. A hard frost soon covered the ground. It was one of those early winter evenings, the kind where the world seems to come alive with sharp contrast. Despite contemporary accounts that the moon was full, we know it was actually close to a new moon. Still, with only a few, if almost no clouds in the sky, the stars burned bright above. And for the likes of Thomas Fitzstevens, all he needed was to see the star of the sea, the Stella Maris, the name given to the North Star, by which navigators of the region could always set a course upon. The high tide came in that Thursday at 10.43pm and based on calculations we think that between 11.30 and 11.45 King Henry's craft and his part of the flotilla set sail to England. By all accounts the surface of the sea was mostly calm with a southerly breeze stiffening the ship's big central sails. The white ship however did not leave with them. The White Ship was a big craft with a crew of over 50 trained men under Fitzstephen and had room for up to 300 passengers. Henry had decided it should carry a human cargo this voyage with no horses or anything large needed to be placed upon it and aside from some royal treasure and a quantity of wine it would be only people on board the ship. Once word had gotten out that Prince William and Richard of Lincoln were aboard alongside Countess Matilda Many of the younger court members were determined to be on board. After all, Prince William was the future of the realm. Apparently, the prospect of the great and good of the kingdom being on board their craft excited the crew enormously. And when William had arrived on board the ship earlier that evening, the sailors had greeted him with cheers and shouts of actual adulation. The crew asked if they could have some wine to toast the young prince. And somehow, with all the impetuous of youth, Prince William had agreed to give them three mouths of wine from the casks on board a ship. That was roughly 200 litres of the stuff. Way too much for even that larger crew to handle. But Thomas Fitzstephen didn't impede the gift, and so the sailors and those on board began to drink heavily. As more passengers filed on board, the party atmosphere continued. Someone suggested a drinking competition. And that made things enormously worse. A bunch of armed marine bodyguards got wonderfully drunk, with them said in an account to be, quote, very disorderly, and as soon as they got on board, insolently took possession of the benches of the rowers, unquote. The fact that the bodyguards appear somewhat drunk when they arrive 
does suggest that there may have been some serious day drinking going on before Prince William even boarded the white ship. And maybe this is why the crew had been given so much of the stuff. Simply put, as King Henry was about to set sail that night for England, it would have become abundantly clear to everyone that the white ship was the party boat. Maybe that was why it was decided that while Prince William would be on the white ship, his young wife, the daughter of Folk of Anjou, should travel on another boat to allow her husband have some fun. Or maybe he put her on the other boat so he could have some fun. But once you realise that, the fact that the rest of the flotilla set sail first makes a tad more sense. While Thomas's white ship was modern, fast, sleek, with a top-notch crew, by now that crew were engaged in the party atmosphere and spirit, and if not drunk, then they were probably pissed. Moving the bodyguards so the rowers could take their seats and getting everyone settled as best they could while everyone else was having a whale of a time, that would have slowed down the normally professional preparations. It wasn't just young nobles on board that party boat. From English shores were a number of names. You had William Bigod, the son of the Earl of Norfolk and the Royal Steward. You had the King's Secretary, Gizulf. You had the King's Chamberlain, Robert of Mordit, and other stewards, officials and royal servants. You had most of the Dervanche family, who included the Earl of Chester, his wife, his illegitimate half-brother and his brother-in-law. You had the D'Aguil family, including Gilbert, who was the Earl of Chester's cousin, and his two sons, Geoffrey and Engelulf. All told, there were about 250 passengers, maybe more, 120 being nobles and the rest being servants, retainers, including the marines, but not including the crew. And some seemed to have little reason to have even been there in the first place. There, amidst all the noise and no doubt singing, was a butcher from Rouen called Burold. He looked totally out of place in his thick sheepskin clothing he'd worn because it gets cold at night. The butcher from Rouen was only on board, we think, because one of the nobles owed him money and he'd come along in order to negotiate a payment. And amidst these passengers was nobility from Normandy and elsewhere, like a man called Ralph who had saved the king from capture at one of the battles that had just gone on. And you had Theodoric, the nephew of the Holy Roman Emperor. You had the son of the Bishop of Constance, along with his brother and three nephews. And you had the two sons of the Sheriff of Leicester, a man who had gone on the First Crusade, but had fled Antioch with Stephen of Bois, if you can remember that story. Oh, and speaking of Stephen of Bois, his family was also on the White Ship. Stephen of Bois had married William the Conqueror's sister, so he was the brother-in-law of the current king. Two of the passengers on the white ship that evening were his children. His daughter was the wife of the Earl of Chester, I've already mentioned. But his principal son and heir, also called Stephen of Bois, had joined the white ship when Prince William had. He was the king's cousin, after all. The traditional story says, this Stephen of Bois was on board the ship as the party atmosphere was kicking off, the, quote, riotous and headstrong youth, unquote, having way too much fun. But in the account of Odoric Vitalis, Stephen of Bois, quote, was suffering from diarrhea, unquote. He urgently needed privacy, and that was impossible given the atmosphere on board. The idea of travelling across the sea on a ship where everyone would have seen him suffering from explosive tummy problems was perhaps a tad too much for him, so Stephen of Bois stepped off the white ship just before it sailed, along with two scandalised monks from the Abbey of Tiron, who were perhaps upset when a couple of priests had turned up to bless the white ship for the journey ahead, and the party people on board had laughed and mocked them. Finally, 
Shortly after midnight, we think, Thomas Fitzstephen was able to establish enough calm to lift the anchor, and the swift, sleek craft slipped out into the port of Barfleur, aiming for the English Channel. According to the account, one of the passengers cheerfully dared Fitzstephen to have the white ship overtake the king's flotilla, which had only set off about 20 or 30 minutes previous, and the lights of the king's ships could be seen in the distance, disappearing over the horizon. No doubt, egged on by the other passengers and confident of his own skill and the professionalism of his crew, Fitzstephen's agreed to the challenge. Thomas Fitzstephen gave the order, and the oarsmen began heaving their heavy spurs. The white ship cut through the waters of Barfleur Harbour, supposedly like an arrow from a bow, foam flying from the blades as they sliced through the dark water with power. The passageway from Barfleur to the channel was simple enough, just go directly northeast, and a helmsman could have steered it easily. But maybe the helmsman was intoxicated. And maybe he wanted to cut corners to win this race they've given themselves. But for whatever reason, his course was slightly out. The white ship was aiming too far to the north, where the high tide covered dangerous rocks. Just at the time when the crew began to trim the sail to catch the wind, the white ship being only a mile from Barfleur and half a mile from the shore, it struck a rock just below the water, we do not know which rock it was, but at least one historian I've read suspects it's one fairly notorious rock in the region. It's still there to this day, located in a rather nasty current called the Raz de Barfleur. The impact of it shattered two planks on the starboard side, and the ship violently stopped dead, and water began pouring into it. People were thrown left and right. The sailors grabbed boat hooks and tried desperately to free the vessel, but it was stuck fast. The rowers fled in panic as the current kept pushing it and smashing it against the rock. Below the deck, some of the passengers drowned without even making it out, while others were suddenly tipped overboard as the current kept the ship moving. Everyone started screaming. Apparently, just ahead, Henry and his flotilla heard the noise, but assuming it was part of the merrymaking, just sailed on. Meanwhile, back on the white ship, either the water filling up the space below deck or a sudden wave caused the ship to capsize and the passengers and crew were thrown into the icy cold, fast flowing current. Freezing cold, the strongest tried to swim against the strong underwater stream but found it impossible. Most of the people on board thrashed about helplessly before they drowned. In all the confusion and chaos, someone was on the ball. A small boat had been launched from the white ship, apparently, and they'd bundled Prince William on board at least. The story goes that as it was rowed away, Prince William heard his older sister Matilda screaming and so ordered them to turn back to get her. As a dinghy tried to make its way through the foaming current, apparently those nearby who were close to drowning tried to climb on board and tipped it over, throwing all, including the air, to England into the sea. True or not, the stricken longship went down in the icy waters. At this point, as a spur came detached from the ship, two men made a mad grab for it. One was Geoffrey de Aguil, and the other was the butcher, Burold. As they clung to it, supposedly Thomas Fitzstephens swam over to them and asked, quote, What has become of the king's son? Burold replied, quote, He and all who were with him have perished. Unquote. Stephen is said to have responded with the words, quote, Then it is misery for me to live any longer. Unquote. 
and he is said to have preferred to have drowned rather than face the king's wrath. In short order, the screams and cries of the survivors of the shipwreck went silent as the cold and the current and the waves sought them all. The two men clung to the spur as it drifted in the night, tossed like down hither and thither by the currents and the sea. In the silence, time passed. Geoffrey de Aguil began showing signs of hypothermia and became weaker and weaker. Finally, he commended his soul to God, made the sign of the cross, and let go of the spur, disappearing beneath the waves. Long was that night. Just before dawn, three local fishermen spotted the spit on which the butcher Barold still clung, the popular opinion being that he'd only survived because he was wearing sheepskin clothing. The butcher from Wuhan was carried back to shore and, fortified with soup and wine, was sat before a roaring fire where he told his story to the large crowd who had gathered to hear news. It is from Berold the butcher that we know of this account of the white ship, and the great chroniclers of the time no doubt gained his version either in person or from one who heard it that morning by a fire in Buffalo. Henry and his ship, however, landed the next day at midday, we think, in Hampshire, and awaited the white ship. The story goes that when it came to the evening and King Henry inquired where the ship was, many in the court had heard about the disaster by now, but none dared tell him, so hid their own grief and said they did not know. It was the next day when one of King Henry's nephews told him of the sinking of the white ship and the loss of his heir and other children. Odoric Vitalis says that when he heard, quote, so sudden was the shock and so severe the king's anguish, that he instantly fainted." Unquote. The king was carried into his bedchamber and there remained for several days. The sense of national shock and grief was palpable. Not only had he lost three of his children, he'd also lost important knights and barons, all of whom now had grieving families, and many of his household officials. Added to this, 18 high-born women had drowned on that trip, the daughters, sisters, nieces and wives of the counts and earls of England. Across in Normandy, the locals scourged the coast until they found the remains of the wreck of the white ship, and they dragged it ashore with ropes at the low tide. The royal treasure was still on board and was salvaged along with almost everything else except the bodies of the dead. Despite much searching, the sea refused to give up the dead, and very few bodies were ever found. Those that were had been carried by current far away, swept miles deep along the coasts, their remains disfigured by water. Richard, the Earl of Chester, was only identifiable by his clothing, along with a small handful of others so discovered. The dark and silent waters off the coast of Normandy, which then, as now, seem often so calm, yet which gently lapped the shore with beneficent malignancy, had done their work. Burold the butcher, for his part, returned home and lived for another twenty years, the one man who survived the white ship. Above all things, however, beyond the tragedy that was the sinking, it was in always a political catastrophe without equal. Henry's entire hard-fought and bloody campaign to reclaim and hold Normandy was now in tatters. It would only be a matter of time before William Cleto could restart his claim for Normandy, 
and he possibly now had a claim upon England. And it was only a matter of time before King Louis of France and Count Folk of Anjou could reunite again, and Normandy would be dragged into that carnage once more. The great victory won by Henry I had lasted only six months, and he would have to start again to rebuild the shattered pieces of his realm, his heart now heavy with the grief at the loss of three of his children. It must be remembered, however, that Henry I was in his early 50s and in excellent health, and he was young enough, perhaps, to have more children. After all, this is the one area he excelled in beyond any monarch of England before or since. He quickly announced his betrothal to the Duke of Lorraine's daughter, a girl named Adeliza, and in January 1021 he married her with great celebration in Windsor Castle, England's new queen crowned the next day. But alas, King Henry's prestigious baby-making abilities failed him, and over the next three years Henry realised that William Clito's insurrection was now restarted. Again, facing the spectre of King Louis joining in as Clito's protector, Henry had to spend increasing amounts of money on mercenary troops and building castles and extended diplomacy to try and keep King Louis out of it. But he was clearly a man looking to secure the amazing diplomatic victory of 1121, and in 1126 he seems to have tried to replicate it. He did, after all, have another legitimate child, his daughter, Matilda. When she had been eight, he had betrothed her to Henry V, the Holy Roman Emperor, a high-prestige married indeed, with the wedding ceremony carried out when she was 14. However, Matilda bore the Emperor no children, and he had died in 1125, meaning Matilda was now a dowager widowed Empress. And with this unexpected change in fortunes, Henry looked to capitalise fast and replayed his previously winning tactic. He would marry a legitimate child of his and his late wife off to the family of Count Folk of Anjou. And as such, Matilda was betrothed to Folk's 14-year-old son, Geoffrey, on January 1st of the year 1127, just down the River Thames from London in Westminster. Henry I summoned his entire court to swear oaths of fealty to his daughter, Matilda, who he had designated heir to his entire kingdom. And she married the 14-year-old Geoffrey of Anjou. Folk, for his part of the wedding deal, agreed to step down as Count of Anjou, handing the title over to his teenage son and then sailing off to Jerusalem. Folk was actually about to marry the queen of the Christian nation of Jerusalem, the lady called Melisande, and those two were to create a story worthy of an entire Netflix TV series, it's so good, but let's stay here on this topic. The oath-swearing that took place towards Matilda in Westminster was unprecedented. England had never been ruled by a queen, and Normandy had never been ruled by a duchess. But in principle, at least, her husband, Geoffrey of Anjou, was expected to be in charge. But he's only a kid, and Henry had left Geoffrey's position deliberately ambiguous, and this had created confusion. No one had been asked to swear oaths to him, and no financial provisions were made for the husband of the heir of England and Normandy. He was, after all, 11 years younger than his bride, and by all accounts, Geoffrey of Anjou was a deeply unpleasant young man, Arrogant, proud, endlessly looking down on his inferiors, and not even hiding the fact that he insisted on ruling over people, former Empress Matilda and her teenage husband soon began to argue, violently, but somehow managed to reconcile for a moment, 
and during this time the headstrong teenager decided to seize some castles belonging to his father-in-law in southern Normandy for reasons, and he'd ended up being at war with King Henry over this. As he grew older, King Henry would come to regret the decision he had made, hoping desperately for a grandson, and with a female heir, around him the wolves were circling. Wolves? Well, young Stephen of Bois, due to his dicky tummy, had not only evaded the disaster of the white ship, in the aftermath he had found himself as a nephew of King Henry, gaining position and status. Henry felt he could trust him. He was kin, after all. Stephen was granted a large inheritance from the king, including huge amounts of land in Normandy and England. It is said that in Westminster, when Henry had ordered all the nobles of England to swear allegiance before God to Matilda as his heir, Stephen of Bois and the king's oldest surviving illegitimate son, Robert Earl of Gloucester, had actually jostled with one another to try to be the first to swear the oath. For the record, Stephen won. And so he swore an oath to Matilda, we need to understand the importance of this act. The oath was not a promise to Matilda, nor even the king. The oath was a promise to God. You could not argue your way out of this oath in a court. This was God here. You obeyed the oath, and you obeyed it unconditionally. If you broke an oath to God, you had committed perjury, whose punishment was eternal damnation. By placing his hand on the Gospels and evoking God as a witness, Stephen of Bois had made a sacred promise to God. If he reneged on it, he was damned. Of course, if spiritual retribution was not enough incentive, there were more physical options. An oathbreaker could be excommunicated by the Pope, but if the individual was uncaring of such things, the Pope could place an interdict upon his lands, punishing those he ruled over. I'm saying this because Stephen of Bois would, in time, renounce his oath to Matilda, and this would drag London into some of its darkest times. The White Ship is a story about an accident, a tragedy that erupted off the coast of Normandy. But the ghost of that ship would haunt England and above all London for many years to come. It is a backdrop for London experiencing a terrifying and unexpected twist in its grand story, and would be the reason while the city was going to be besieged for the first time by forces who were not Vikings. The ghost of the White Ship was to haunt England in the form of a civil war, so terrible, so ferocious and so long-lasting, that to this day, the name we give to that war is the Anarchy. The shade of that wooden craft was to leave an indelible mark upon London and the next few chapters will bring us through to that tale. But for now, I will leave it there. For all of you who have supported the story of London over the last year, thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed making it. I will, over the next few weeks, place up a copy of the script for this, plus a reading list of books, as well as the last one up on Imager for those inclined to read it. And I will see you next week as we return to our regular programming. Henry I's long reign continues, and he's about to change the relationship between London and the Crown forever. Thank you for listening. Bye.